0: I'm reading a single verse from Proverbs 22, where we read, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. With many of you, I've been familiar with the injunction of that verse since my earliest Christian days. And at one time, I read into it more than it actually says. And I assume that what it means is that if Christian parents are faithful in teaching their children the things of Christ, it is assured that those children will turn to Christ in faith and follow him in loving obedience. And at first glance, this seems to be borne out by testimonies that we frequently hear in the fellowship of the church. Here we speak of adults, here we listen to adults speak of the homes in which they were raised, and the godly influence of their parents. Many of you fall in this category. You have sweet memories of the wise counsel of your Christian fathers and of the bedtime prayers of your Christian mothers. And this is a wonderful and a cherished tradition. And by the grace of God, may our children look back on their home experience and be thankful as you are thankful for yours. But then we also remember godly men in the church, who in some cases have given leadership to the church as its elders and whom we have every reason to believe were excellent fathers, but whose sons have turned away from the faith. We think of faithful women who have served the church as deacons and Sunday school teachers and in other ways, but whose daughters are now raising children of their own without reference to Christ. And if one of these anecdotal pieces of evidence apparently supports the principle we think we might see of this verse of Scripture, then the other seems to contradict it. As my knowledge of the Scriptures increased, and particularly as I became convinced that the core doctrines of our Reformed heritage are valid, I realized that what I had once assumed about the meaning of this verse cannot possibly be true. The call of believing parents is not to make believers of their children. This is the work of the Holy Spirit fulfilling the eternal decree of our God. Our preaching, our teaching, however zealously they might be done, however thoroughly they might be bathed in prayer, can never persuade a single sinner to repent and to embrace Christ as his savior. If God wills for a person to be saved, there's nothing that you and I can do to prevent his conversion. And on the other hand, if God wills for a person not to be saved, including those we love the most, there's nothing you and I can do to drag him through the gates of the kingdom of God. And therefore, Proverbs 22, 6 is not, and in fact it cannot be, A promise from God that if believing parents are faithful, their children will grow up to be believers. But what it can mean, and I believe what it does mean, is that if Christian parents are persistent in teaching Christian values to their children, then it is very likely that those values will influence the lives of their children all of their lives. And I remind you on this Christian Education Sunday that the primary responsibility for teaching these things belongs to parents, and the first place where these things are to be heard by children is in the home. Whatever we do in the worship and the teaching of the church should augment, and not take the place of, the efforts by parents to teach the things of Christ to their children. In a way, the counsel of this birth is very practical. It says that the first people to influence the heart and mind of a child make an impression on that child that is likely to stay with him all the days of his life. And we see that in the church. I have known Presbyterians who were raised in Catholic homes, whom I suspect are still prone on occasion in their personal prayers to speak to Mary and to seek the help of the saints in facing the dilemmas of life. I have known Presbyterians who were raised in Lutheran homes who find it difficult to fully enter into the prayers that we offer together and the hymns that we sing. And I know Presbyterians who were raised in Baptist homes who look with great suspicion on our habit of baptizing babies and are not happy that we don't end our services with an invitation. And then a broader application, I think we'd all agree that children who were raised by parents who were atheists but were taught by their parents to be polite and fair and kind and honest are more likely than not to grow up to be polite, fair, kind, honest adults. This general idea that the first person who influences the thoughts and feelings of a child in the arena of religion or morality makes not only a first but a lasting impression on that child applies to other areas of life. For example, I grew up preferring Chrysler products. Not because I was familiar with the many ways in which Chevrolets and Fords and Plymouths might be compared, but simply because my dad drove Plymouths. I was in my late teens when he started doing consulting work for GM and switched to Chevys, but it was too late, the die was cast, and I still preferred cars made by Chrysler. If your family heritage is German or English or French, you probably cheered for that nation's team in the Olympics and hoped that they would finish second only to the United States. If your mother graduated from Central Michigan University, it's likely that if you follow college football at all, that you were cheering for them in yesterday's game against Michigan State. And if your father was in the Air Force, it would be no surprise if you share his view that it is the most important of all of the armed forces. In each of these examples, the principle is exhibited that if we train up a child in the way that we think he should go, that when he is old he will not depart from it. And what is true in almost every other sphere of human life is also true in the arena of politics. Most people who identify themselves as democrats were raised by democrats. Most people who call themselves republicans grow up in republican homes. You certainly are aware that we're in the midst of a very significant political campaign The issues of that that campaign in Michigan and for the nation are many, but chief among them is the question, who will be the President of the United States for the next four years? And as a part of that campaign, in a speech given by one of the great orators of our time, former President Bill Clinton, this question was asked. What kind of nation do you want America to be? It's an excellent question. It focuses our attention on matters that transcend the personalities of the candidates and the fleeting issues of our day. It asks us to stand above the fray, to see the larger picture, and then to return from that pinnacle to cast our vote. What kind of nation do you want America to be? Our challenge as Christian believers regardless of our family and personal histories and background, is to answer this question not as Democrats, not as Republicans, but as Christians. I'd like to talk with you about some of the ways in which I believe that we as Christians ought to answer Mr. Clinton's question. Our deepest longing as believers is to have a country in which the vast majority of its citizens are true Christian believers. One in which nearly every heart beats faster at every mention of the cross. A land in which every mind is shaped by the word of God. And the highest aspiration of each of its citizens is nothing other than knowing and pleasing the living God. This would be a nation in which the name of God is used only in praise in which churches are full to overflowing on the mornings of the Lord's Day. In such a setting as that, much that passes for entertainment today would all but disappear. Football fans would cheer great plays made by either side, and policemen would have nothing to do but direct traffic after auto accidents. This is our longing. This is our frequent prayer that the Spirit of God might prompt a revival in America and draw masses of its people to that cross on which Jesus died and into that church for which he gave himself. But even as our hearts plead on America's behalf before the throne of God, our minds turn to his word where we learn that such a hope is probably not realistic. Not long ago in our worship we looked together And what the Bible says about the reasonableness of expecting that at any time, in any place, in the history or the present of the world, that a majority of any people would be true believers. We consider the time of Noah and the fact that only eight people were saved by the flood and found reason to think that not all of them were believers. We were reminded that in the retreat of Jacob from peril in Canaan to the relative safety of Egypt, the covenant people of God numbered less than 75 persons. We reflected on the times of Elijah and the fact that in the entire nation of Israel, there were only 7,000 that God said he had kept for himself. And we recall that while there were thousands of people whom Jesus taught and fed and touched and healed, When he left the earth, his disciples may have numbered as many as 500 people. We put all of this together and we realize that our desire for a sweeping revival in America is probably a vain hope. With our hearts, we continue to pray, but with our minds, we shift our attention to Plan B as we try to answer Mr. Clinton's question, what kind of country do you want America to be? As Christians, we would like to have a country in which political euphemisms are set aside and replaced with honest speech. For example, when we debate abortion and gay marriage, let's stop calling these social issues. Whether people should turn off their cell phones during a funeral, that's a social issue. Whether drivers should signal their turns, is a social issue. Whether young people should wear their pants so low that their posterior cleavage shows is a social issue. But taking the life of an unborn child is a moral issue. Discussing the public practice of a lifestyle that until very recently was taboo in the United States and all of the world is a moral issue. To call these great questions of morality social issues is to trivialize them. It is to make them seem inconsequential. It is to treat them as matters of mere personal taste. And yet the media and many of our politicians continue to speak of them in this way. We are the followers of one who said, let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay. What kind of country do we want? We want a country in which public speak about the, speech about the important issues of our time is honest speech. And as Christians we'd like to be a part of a country in which the connection between good living and a strong economy is recognized. The state of the economy is on everybody's mind. For many who will vote this November it is the number one issue and both major candidates for president have expressed it and made rather lavish promises to take care of the problem. But neither of them seems to know or is willing to admit that he believes that there's a link A cause and effect link between strong morals and a strong economy. In our unison scripture reading this morning, we heard the voice of God declare that following the principles of high morality leads to blessings in the home and blessings in the field. And if we were to have read on We would have heard the voice of God say just the opposite, that the failure to follow these principles leads to misery and deprivation in the home and in the field. These words were spoken to the children of God, God's special people, his covenant people at the time. But the idea that they apply more broadly to the family of man has scriptural support. As Christians... We want a nation in which at least the possibility of divine intervention in the affairs and in the economies of men is taken seriously. We want a nation in which the worth of every man, rich or poor, is enshrined in its laws and realized in its practices. It's a generalization, but one that corresponds roughly to political reality that the two major political parties in America are identified with the rich on the one side and with the poor on the other. Now there are very poor Republicans and there are very rich Democrats. But having said that, Republicans are generally seen as fawning over the wealthy while Democrats are accused of catering to the poor. This division is so great and so obvious that some commentators have begun to refer to the class warfare that is being encouraged by political rhetoric in our country. If you and I and other believers were writing the constitution of a new nation, we would insist that the rich and poor be equal in the estimate of those who govern and would be treated fairly in its courtroom. This principle is found in scripture. But it is so obviously wise, so obviously necessary, that it doesn't require either a faith of God or a belief in the inspiration of the scriptures to believe that we would be wise to apply it to our society. In Leviticus 19.15, we read, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. You shall not give special honor to those in power. We would like to have a country in which life is regarded as having value in itself. There are two very different views of the value of human life in the world and in human culture. The one which is either rooted in or at least consistent with our Christian faith is that life has intrinsic value, while the other side assigns life only an external or an extrinsic worth. On this latter view, human life has value if it is wanted, if it is useful or productive, if it is being enjoyed and relatively free from pain. But if any of these conditions should fail, then that life can be brought to an end without a twinge of conscience or penalty of law. This view is common among atheists, materialists, Marxists, and socialists. And it's often couched in the language of pragmatism. You don't want that baby born into a setting in which it isn't wanted, do you? Your mother's in a coma. She's eating up family resources. She's using a bed someone else needs. We could give her a shot. She wouldn't feel anything. It's the kind thing to do, they say. The Christian view is that every human life has value whether or not that life is wanted or happy or productive, whether that life belongs to the retarded or is being carried in the womb or lies shriveled in the bed of a nursing home, and that its value is not to be measured by the cost of maintaining it or by the inconvenience it might seem to represent or by its usefulness to others. We would like to have a country in which people actually believe that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights among which is life itself. We'd like to have a country in which the crucial importance of marriage is recognized in its statutes and in the values of its people. We'd like to live in a nation that believes that there are certain privileges that belong only to the married. And one that recognizes that marriage is an institution so essential to the stability of a society as to require the protection of its laws. Those laws would make adultery a serious crime. Not only against the innocent spouse, but also against the community whose order such laws are written to protect And the laws of such a nation would make the dissolution of marriage not impossible, but difficult. No-fault divorce is one of many ways that we in America have diminished the importance of marriage. And in our ideal country, marriage would be defined as a legal binding relationship between a man and a woman. And it would be recognized that creating marriage-like relationships called civil unions is nothing but a political ruse to disguise the shrinking value we assign to this oldest and most important relationship in human society. We want America to once again be a nation that assigns high and unique value to marriage. These are some of the ways in which I would recommend that we as Christians answer Mr. Clinton's question. I don't say these things this morning. And if you're so inclined, you shouldn't repeat them tomorrow with the hope that the world in which we live has any interest in them at all. The influence of the scriptures is fading in American life. The opinion of the church of Jesus Christ is seldom sought and its voice is all but unheard. In the debates of the time in which we live. The chances of such thoughts as these being accepted or even carefully considered are very slim. But these are the principles of God. They're found spread across the pages of His Word and intended to govern the lives of His people. And whether or not America retains any interest in such things, you and I must Our faith in Jesus Christ requires that of us. That means that in our lives and in our efforts to train up the children in our lives, these must be among the values we deliberately try to follow and impress on the young minds in our care. That God calls us to be honest and forthright in our speech. That there is a link between obedient moral living and the blessings of God. That we are required to be fair in our views and our treatment of others, whether they be rich or poor, powerful or insignificant, famous or unknown. That the value of life is to be found in life itself, which is the creation of God, and not in any other measure. And that marriage is a relationship to be held in a high esteem, higher than that we assign to any other human relationships. We do these things. We teach these things in the hope and with the prayer that the blessings of God will be known in our lives, in our marriages and families, and perhaps beyond that in the streets of America. Let us pray. Our Father, these are critical times in which we live. We see America slipping away from things once held dear and high, into a chaos and abyss of morality and religion and thought. We pray first of all, our God, that you would protect us and our children from the influence of that world. And We pray that we might be strong and faithful informed, that we might live in the presence of the ungodly as your redeemed children. Make of us the light of the world. Make of us the salt of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.